Welcome to Blackbird episode number 21. My name is James, and first of all, happy Easter for those of you who celebrate it. Today, I am thrilled to bring you an interview with none other than the godfather of libertarian podcasters, Tom Woods. Uh, I'm excited to be able to sit down and chat with him for an hour or so. And so without further ado, here is my interview with Tom Woods. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. My pleasure, James. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, being that it's the first time you've been on my show, um, I would love to have you introduce yourself to the people who already know who you are, uh, but just in your own words. Well, there's, it's hard to do this because you feel kind of like a jerk, but I guess you could say I've been around the liberty movement for about 20 years. And before that, I was kind of in and out like, I yeah, okay, I like what you're saying, but I was going through like a really, really extreme, extreme conservative phase. Like, I don't mean like Newt Gingrich or even Pat Buchanan. I mean like Saudi Arabia extreme for a while. And then I ditched all that and became an ANCAP uh, officially in 2001. But I have an academic background that allows me to move comfortably within certain establishment circles because, uh, you know, I went to Harvard and Columbia but I'm not really like any of those people. And I feel very uncomfortable around most of them, uh, even though I can hold my own socially and, and be pleasant and delightful. But meanwhile, I'm thinking, get me the MF out of here. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but you know, I've, I've written, I've been writing books for a long time, haven't written one in about seven years, but the ones I have done, I've been particularly proud of uh, because I think they filled gaps in, in what was out there. And, when there was a financial crisis in 2008, I was afraid there would be no Austrian school response unless, frankly, I wrote it because I was asking around, no one was going to write it. And, and I even asked Ron Paul, why don't you write it? And he says, well, I've already written everything I want to say about that. Okay, that's what makes it easy. Just gather those things together. And, and I, I had no success with that whatsoever. So I, I wrote Meltdown and that did really well. Uh, and so since then, I've been, you know, I have had the Tom Woods Show uh, podcast. Um, I had a Rather a nice honor a couple of years ago in Vienna. I, I won the Hayek Lifetime Achievement Award at the age of 47, which is not too shabby. I'm, I'm hopeful that if I can put another good 40 years in, maybe they'll give me a second Lifetime Achievement Award. They have a very, the, the I guess the life expectancy in the assumption behind these Lifetime Achievement Awards is from like uh, 1503. <laughs> so maybe I'll have a chance for a second one. But uh, so I do that and I, I, I have, a, a, you know, some little businesses I run on the side and, and I live in Florida, the free state. And th that's the, that's the super, super short version. Um, if someone asks you what you do for a living, what would you, what would you answer? I never know what to say. Like, I don't even, like my kids <laughs> yeah. say to me, what should we tell people when they ask what you do? And I say, you're on your own kid. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. I mean, you know, the easiest thing to say is that I'm an author, but you know, I'm kind of milking that for all it's worth. Cause as I said, I haven't written a book in seven years. What kind of an author am I? Um, I don't want to be like that guy who's been working on a novel for 20 years, you know, and that's what he's always telling his friend. So I, I could say I'm a podcast host, but then you, you just don't sound serious. What? Right. Nobody makes a living as a podcast host. Well, 
there are some who do, and I manage to make a living as a podcast host. But on the other hand, I have my own products like the Liberty Classroom subscription site. I do I do internet marketing. I do email marketing. Um, I I designed courses for the Ron Paul homeschool curriculum. I'm a public speaker. So I don't know, I could just say I'm a marketer or what I've been doing lately, like if I'm at the barber shop or something, I say, well, I know this is gonna sound ridiculous, but I host a podcast and believe me, this is not my way of saying I'm unemployed. There are some people who can make a go of hosting a podcast and I actually do. Yeah, I was thinking just this morning, like you are the the one person I know who can make just academic lectures kind of fun. Like, uh, you know, when you're interviewing a professor, you don't sound like you're interviewing a professor. Thank you. I appreciate that. That is exactly what I'm shooting for. And at the same time, I want it to be the case that even though a lot of the guests on my show tend to be people I know personally, just because I've been around for so long, um, you know, these are a lot of them are academics. But even when I bring an academic on who's never interacted with me before, I had somebody came on and talked about the history of the U.S. presidency. I want to be on a level where he'll feel like he was speaking to a colleague and, you know, not some punk. So I, I pride myself on preparing for the episodes. And, you know, again, after being around this material for so long, just in general, being prepared, being able to have an intelligent, interesting, engaging conversation on a variety of topics with more or less experts in those fields. That's a nice thing. Bob Murphy outdoes even me on that because he'll have a Harvard astronomer to come on and talk about black holes. And I'm <laughs> You know, and then the Harvard astronomer at the end says, wow, you asked some really good questions. And I think, ah, I can only aspire to to such a, a, a accomplishment as that. Yeah. Bob Murphy, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. And I don't want to I don't want to denigrate your contributions, but he is his show is so well-rounded. And like, you know, he'll have a, an opposing economist on just to shoot the breeze and and make their points, not to debate them and stuff like that. So I uh, I you know, not to, not to pump up his show too much, but I would definitely recommend the audience listen to the Bob Murphy show. Um, yeah, I like, I like Bob, obviously, you know, but Bob and I have been working together for a long time yeah. and I've been a booster of his for quite some time. What was your first, um, like income generating project outside of academia or outside of your fellowship at the Mises Institute, which I guess is uh, okay. Too. Yeah, yeah, because I I did teach some courses for the you know what was at that time the Mises Academy remotely after I moved away. I I, I had actually been in person at the Mises Institute. I was a resident scholar there for four years, and then I moved away, and I continued to teach courses through them. But yeah, and so then after I after I left. I had to do an awful lot of public speaking in order to yeah. to generate the dough that I needed for all the kiddos, uh, and then I, I kept writing books. But that was just getting that was making me crazy. The last original book I wrote because I wrote one seven years ago called Real Descent, and that was just a collection of my essays, but that had never been published in paper uh, form before. But I'm very very happy with that book. I think that's maybe the best thing I've ever done. But before that, the last really original book I wrote was 10 years ago, and it was the book Rollback, which basically is like everything but the kitchen sink is in that book. And the deadlines and the work, and I would always take more work on than I could handle, thinking, well, if I take on another assignment, I know I'm not going to just blow it off. I know I'm not going to tell these people, sorry, I didn't produce it. I know it'll get done, and it's just my job now to figure out how to get it done. Well, that's a scary 
prospect after a while. It, it really, really causes you a lot of stress. And I was actually having physical manifestations of the stress. It was very, very bad. Like I could feel my heart beating inside my body. I, I, um, I, 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 in 2011, I limped, or it might've been 2010, I limped around CPAC. I limped because I was convinced I had fractured something or I had, I had sprained something or whatever in my foot. But it turns out there was nothing wrong with me. I went to the doctor, there was nothing wrong with me. The day I submitted the book manuscript, the pain went away. And I thought, all right, this, I can't do this anymore. So now I'm gonna have to look at that. So I'm not gonna do my main thing anymore. I had been publishing like a, on average a book a year at that point. So what was I gonna do now? Uh, maybe even 1.4 books a year. What was I gonna do now? So I did have to get a little bit creative. So the first thing I did that actually helped me to make a living apart from academia, apart from an academic institution like the Mises Institute, and apart from flying all over the country all the time or writing books, was um, when I opened up, nine years ago, I opened up libertyclassroom.com. And that was a way of taking the audience I'd built through the books and through YouTube and articles I'd written and offering them something different, that if you like my books, maybe you'll like courses. And I, since I don't know everything, I brought on other faculty members to teach courses in U.S. history, European history, uh, philosophy, economics, etc. And that's been going strong for nine years. And and I don't I don't know how much revenue it's brought in like total. I've never added it up, but I mean it's it's in the seven figures. I, I can be certain of that. So that's done really well. That was the, but the thing is that was a gamble. I, I don't know if people are going to want that. And I laid out a lot of money to pour into that. Cause I'm not going to ask other people who have busy schedules and lives and academic careers. Oh, um, <clears throat> make me a 40 lecture course and I'll pay you according to how well the site does. That's just not fair to do to somebody. So instead I said, I will pay you X dollars up front, And then this percentage going forward into the future. And so it's, like a, so it's like a it's like a publishing contract the way that you the way that you have sort of modeled it. it exactly except the difference is with a publishing contract they give you an advance against royalties this was a flat payment plus royalties so they um they accepted that and i probably between you know the web design all the the work the technical work that needs to be done and then paying for the courses and everything i probably poured 50 grand of my own money into this thing so I was, let's just say when there was a very small handful of people who were unhappy that the site wasn't free. Now, right now on the site, there's something like 27 courses and you get all of them for like $89. And th like, that's a ridiculous bargain. Yeah. Unbelievable, especially at this quality for, uh, with a libertarian take on these topics, you can't find that anywhere else. I mean, literally you cannot find that anywhere else. Yeah. And I had a handful of people upset that it wasn't free. And I thought, so, okay, so it's my role to take 50 grand, pour it into something, and then just not get that back. According to you, that's that's my role. So those people are dead to me. I'm Anybody with a hammer and sickle stuck in their brains, I'm not interested in dealing with. So, but anyway, that, that did really well. The first day I released it, uh, and I saw the sales just coming in and coming in and coming in, I thought, oh, thank God. <laughs> thank God this worked. Um. 
Yeah, that, I think that your model, the subscription-based model, um, gets you the most bang for your buck as far as that goes. Uh, I know that like Thad Russell and Brian McClanahan, and I mean, even like Masterclass, I think, charges by the class. And yeah, it's less expensive up front, but uh, for what you're getting in Liberty Classroom. Um, and you, you also have a very generous affiliate program, which uh, is why I link to Liberty Classroom in every single episode of show notes. Good. Uh, blackbirdpodcast.com slash woods, of course. Um, anyway... Uh, so the the last year, you have obviously really been heavy focused on COVID, um, and I don't want to make this a COVID episode. I've already had three of those. Yeah. Um, I'd like to know, though, kind of what you have, what lessons you've learned from the pandemic. Jeez. Well, the first and obvious one <clears throat> that I've repeated a number of times is uh, how few people care. Uh, how how many people will just go along? I mean, we we used to, you know, make snarky remarks about the 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 compliance levels of the general public when it came to a variety of other things in their lives. But surely this, I mean, the things that give their lives meaning, surely before you give those up, you're going to research as best you can what's really going on. Like, is this really justified? I, I I've got to scour all the resources I have to try to find out, is, is is this an overreaction? And almost no one seems to have done that. It's, oh, well, some people said we better do this, so let's do it. And then there's no real interest in following up. Did it do any good? Did it, you know, let's compare states side by side. Almost none of that. So it it's, that's pretty demoralizing. Also, I had not fully appreciated just how politicized science itself has become or let's say individual scientists, um, the, just the, the shift in tone since Biden got in office. You know, we're moving in the right direction. That is not something they would have said um, three weeks earlier. Now, okay, the numbers did change, that's true. But there were, the numbers changed in the summer of, of 2020 and we didn't get, we're moving in the right direction. It's everybody brace for the second wave. You know, so it's, it's, you know, you do still have some panic mongers out there, but in general, the, the tone it has, it's been surprising how much it's shifted, but, but also the way um, the definition of herd immunity would literally change or the, the, the so-called science behind school openings. I mean, the, the current head of the CDC knows full well that that's all bogus and it's all just a sop to teachers union. She knows that. We know that because she expressed her opinion about it. And now suddenly it's, well, I have to toe the line. What line? You're supposed to be a scientist. So it's 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 embarrassing. And the idea of public, the, the public health establishment, I think we have to now go back and somebody needs to write a book about so-called public health. Because if they're this much of a train wreck, it's like the CIA in the war in Iraq, right? I mean, as clueless as you could possibly be. Um, you know, I mean, I suppose there were some people who tried to warn about it, but same thing in public health. There were a handful of people who tried to say, hey, this is all a big mistake and we shouldn't be doing it. But we need to see what the wreckage has been from these, these chuckleheads because it can't just be this is their one bad thing. I, I, the whole idea of public health, I, I am now... I probably should have been concerned about before. It seems like a collectivist idea to start with. So it's made me a lot more suspicious about a lot more people, I guess. Yeah, I think the, so in most episodes, I ask the guest um, for like what, what advice they would give to someone. And 
almost every one of them have said that their advice would be, and this comes from libertarians, non-libertarians, um, just normies, whatever, uh, is to build a community of people who can support you and who you can support. Um, so, I th and, and that I think has been sort of a, a big collective lesson uh, from all sorts of people. Um, do you think that society is naturally becoming decentralized? Well, I think there are definitely uh, trends that there's a tug of war going on, I think, because definitely there are the big tech companies that would like it to stay the way it is because they want it to be, they want there to be a handful of approved sources of information or, or let's say alleged fact checkers. And they like that kind of setup, but increasingly, even though it's been a little hard for startup uh tech companies to compete with them, that definitely seems to be the direction we're going in because you have in the United States, tens of millions of people who are permanently alienated from those companies and from the society around them, who are just looking for a way not to be constantly put upon and abused and condemned and smeared and had their reputations destroyed because they have different political opinions. So I definitely think there's um, there are people who would like to see a peaceful, political arrangement whereby people of different points of view can just coexist. But I think there's a, the other side of, of this feels like it's got victory within its grasp. It's not about to let people go decentralized somewhere. It wants to put the final boot on the neck. So we just have to see which trend uh, wins out over the other. What about um, like interpersonal and familial relationships. Have you learned anything this year on that? Or even, I mean, in just the, the last couple of years? Well, uh, let's see. I have gotten in my email inbox quite a few um, pieces of anecdotal evidence about what's happened within families, specifically because of the COVID thing. It's it's absolutely tragic. And I just, just today on Twitter, somebody said, my brother-in-law said that if you say masks don't work, I can't talk to you. So I said, all right, well, here's a chart showing, um, I think it's either deaths or hospitalizations in uh, the Midwestern states. And they're all, it's all trending downward. I said, can you pick out which of these states don't have mask mandates? Should be easy for him, right? Ask him if he can pick them out. If he can pick them out, then you won't bother him. But if he can't, then maybe he's saying they don't make any difference. <laughs> of course, no, I'm not going to actually, I'm sure he's not actually going to do that. But it's... I, I've, I've gotten emails from parents who are aghast at their kids buying into this uh, or kids aghast that their parents have bought into it. It has really divided people uh, against each other. Now, thankfully, not in my family. Um, I do have a nurse in my family who tried to lecture me a little bit on Facebook, and I was not having any of it. I, I understand that, that uh, you're my aunt and I'm supposed to, or no, actually, no, I think she's like my, come to think of it, she's like my second cousin. So sorry, <laughs> you're not, you don't get anything. <laughs> you're sorry, you're nothing other than go read my ebook is about all I'm going to say to you on this. But yeah, it's, it's been, in fact, as a matter of fact, I have coming up this uh, as, as at the time that you and I are recording this, this is the week that I'm doing a whole week of episodes with a libertarian who may not be as well known as he should be named Gary Chartier, who's part of the, what we might call the left libertarian movement. Mm -hmm. He's written an awful lot about the topic of friendship from a philosophical and theological standpoint. And we're going to talk a bit about friendship and differing political views and, you know, whether 
it makes sense to cut off friendships on the basis of this or whether friendship should endure in the face of these things. Yeah, I gave his book, uh, I, I think it was like an organizational theory or um, it, it was a business book basically, but I gave his, I gifted his book to the CEO of the company that I worked for prior to my current job um, right before he laid me off actually. So <laughs> a lot of good that did, but anyway, yeah, Gary Chartier, uh, he's, he's, um, he's a, he's a great, a great snag, I guess. Uh, I'm glad that you're doing a whole week of them. And actually yeah. this, this podcast isn't going to, or this episode isn't going to post for two weeks. I think I'm, I'm really backlogged on interviews. So that will have already well, happened. Okay. People can go back and, and yeah. check out Gary Chartier week for themselves. Yeah. Just binge it. It's only a half hour an episode. So a right. um, couple hours of your time. Um, <clears throat> so you're kind of a hyper-driven, hyper uh, productive person. And actually sounds like that drivenness and product productivity, um, manifested itself in some crazy psychosomatic, uh, sure. physiological symptoms in your past. What, yeah. a what advice do you give to somebody who is just feeling stretched super thin right now? Not, not that that would be me or anything. <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to think out loud here. I'm not exactly sure what my advice is. But one thing I used to sort of joke about in a, in a macabre sort of way, uh, occasionally in my email, uh, I would, I would tease with the, the subject line, something like my, my productivity secret. People would want to know, Oh, wow. What is it? He's going to tell me how he's able to get all this done. And then you would open it and it would say, well, here's my secret. I just sacrifice everything that's meaningful to me and I don't get enough sleep and I am a mess all the time and I'm frantic and miserable. <laughs> that's my secret. Okay. So if you want this level of productivity, that's how you can get it. And so when I put it that way, I thought, geez, even I see there's a problem with that, right? Even I uh, have to uh, sit up and take notice about what I'm doing to myself. So I had a, a real, I mean, I never sacrificed my relationship with my children over this. So they were always number one, always. So at 5 p.m. sharp, I was with them. And I, I mean, to this day, not there's anything wrong with watching football on Sundays. I've never watched football. On I've watched the Super Bowl a couple of times, but I, I want to be with them. This is These are irreplaceable hours I have with them, and I, I want to be with them. But having said that, I was a, I was a ridiculous workaholic. And, and some of it, you know, some of it comes from a very, very bad place. It comes from a place of, of deep and profound insecurity that comes from uh, when I was younger and feeling like I needed to prove myself to people who didn't like me. And I felt like if I could just accomplish this and this and this and this, that would make me somehow a worthy person. And eventually I realized that my worth doesn't come from that. And also, frankly, I, I modeled myself after Murray Rothbard, not, not in the sense that I was at his level of intelligence, but that he, he just churned out a lot of really good stuff. And I wanted to churn out a lot of good stuff. But, you know, Rothbard didn't have any kids and I have five. And so again, you've got to make some decisions for yourself. So I, I managed to crack out of this. What, what did it was, uh, do you watch the Simpsons? I'm familiar with the Simpsons familiar okay. enough. Okay. Well, Homer eats a lot of donuts and there's one of my scenes that I love is somehow he gets into hell and he's, he's assigned to the department of ironic punishments. And so this demon starts shoving donuts into his mouth. He says, you like donuts, eh? Well, here you go. Here are all the donuts in the world. And the thing is, 
he he eats all of them. <laughs> and so they, like, the demon is scratching his head like, I don't know what happened. <laughs> he was trying to punish him this way. Didn't work. Well, I had a similar thing happen, but it did work. Um, when I worked on that uh, extremely difficult Ron Paul curriculum program, um, you know, I, I created courses for the, the high school students. I have a page up for ronpaulhomeschool.com. And this was two years of my life. And it was hundreds and hundreds of videos on everything from antiquity up to the present. And it was, it was crushing. I mean, I had taught Western Civ in, in, you know, long before, but never at this level of detail, never this many hundreds of videos. It was brutal. I mean, all the time, all my time was spent uh, researching, preparing, uh, delivering, editing, uh, these videos, and then coming up with writing assignments for them and uploading them. I mean, it was absolutely horrifying how much work it was. And that drove the workaholism out of me. It drove it out of me. I, at that point, I was just, I was just broken completely. And ever since then, I haven't wanted to write another book. I, ha I have just wanted to sort of take it easy. Now you say, I look like I produce an awful lot of stuff even now, but let's just say, I'm in charge of my work rather than vice versa at this stage of my life. And I now, if anything, I'm addicted to taking vacations. I used to resent going on vacation. There was even a time in my life where I would look around other vacationers with their stupid Hawaiian shirts. And I would say, what a bunch of frivolous people. I mean, I was just insufferable. Now it's like, I, I don't even want to be home. You know, like, I, I barely want to be talking to you right now. I want to be getting on a plane, going somewhere, you know, even though, by the way, I thoroughly am enjoying this thoroughly, but you know what I mean? I, I've, I've, I conquered it. So I, but the thing is, it's hard to give advice because sometimes people are working really hard because they, they need the money, you know, and I don't, I don't know what to tell people on that other than if you work smart, it's possible that you'll get to a point where you can pull back a bit. But I've gotten to a point where I can, I can get two weeks worth of work done in a week and then go on vacation for a week. And I can repeat that again and again. Uh, I, can, I can wake up and basically not do anything for a day and it'll be okay. You know, it'll be, or I can work at 8 p.m. Start then if I want to. I, I can just say, I wanna go to the beach today. Or I can bring my computer to the beach and do all my writing right there on the beach. Like that doesn't come overnight. But if you work smart, if you if you model yourself, if, you, if there's something that you want to have, you find somebody who has it. I mean, this reminds me of the interview I did with John Lee Dumas recently, uh, where he talked about finding a mentor. And I said, how do you find a mentor? And he says, a mentor is somebody who is now where you want to be. And you either <laughs> actually have that person literally work with you, or you just model yourself, not copy, but model yourself after what that person is doing and find out how, they, how they're doing it, how they got there, and just work smart to get there yourself. And that may mean, to, even today, I was just saying, or yesterday, I was saying, I'm going to take Facebook and Twitter off my phone. I have it on the computer because I want to engage with people there because it helps me. But it's not productive. It is, it is making me do stupid things that are wasting my time. And it means I don't have time left over for hobbies and I want to pursue my hobbies. So I, in some ways it's a matter of very scrupulously observing how you are spending your time, maybe even journaling about it or getting an app that keeps track of how you're spending your time during the day. Do that for a week, then review it and you will find extra time that you can apply to leisure, rest, rejuvenation, maybe another project or something, but 
in, in general, that time very often, not always, but very often is in there. It's just hidden. Boy, I wonder how many, how many people uh, in that sort of entrepreneurial realm have taken Facebook and Twitter off their phones. That's a really good point. I spend so much time staring at my phone that could be spent. You and know. it's all scrolling Facebook. I mean, yeah. I mean, 90% of it. And I could be doing other things. There's so many things that, that would enrich me that I could do while, and, and by the way, I'm using my phone. Let's say I'm, I'm waiting for an oil change or I'm standing in line at the grocery store. I, I don't like that to be dead time. If I can get a few mm-hmm. emails done, that's more time, <clears throat> excuse me, that's more time I have for the kids later. You know, so that's, in fact, I was in an, an, an elevator once and I was, I was getting a couple of quick emails done and there was an older gentleman in the elevator who knew nothing about email or phones, whatever. But what he knew was that the younger generation is a bunch of stupid heads because they're always just staring at their phones. (laughs) So he tried to lecture me about it. And I just, I was not in the mood. So I turned to him and I explained, well, I managed to get five minutes worth of work done um, in waiting for, in in standing out here outside and then waiting for the elevator, then being in here. If I get that done, that's five extra minutes I have to spend with my kids. How's that a bad thing to you? Silence. So <laughs> there are ways that I can be productive on that thing that can, that can mean that when I am home, I can be doing something, you know, enjoyable and, and refreshing for me uh, physically and spiritually. Um, what, what does, uh, speaking of spiritually, what does your spiritual life look like? Well, these days it's been, it's a little bit crazy because of the, yeah. the virus. So if I travel, it's hard to find a church where people are, are normal because it's all, you know, virus hysteria and pews roped off or wh- whatever. Um, and that's also the case in the, in the more traditionalist. No, I mean, like if I just genuinely want to go oh, okay. to any old mass whatsoever. So now if you, if you seek out a, a, a traditional, like for example, I was in Tampa about a month and a half ago and I just found the local Latin mass and I went there and uh, as we walked, it was diocesan. So that means they also have the, the new liturgy. So you don't know what their policy is going to be. So as we walked in, I asked the usher, so what's the mask policy here? He says, well, you know, people make their own minds up and some people wear them, some people won't. I walked in there, there was not one mask in the entire place. The, the guy had just got done telling me, well, some people will wear them. Yeah, by some people, he means nobody. Wait, then Tampa... I had- Tampa at this point should just be a wasteland of dead bodies. What it was the Super Bowl in the maskless churches? That should, especially since a lot of elderly people go there. So then in the, uh, I, I had to take my seven-year-old to the uh, restroom and I went there and there were people left over from the previous mass having donuts and stuff. So they were congregating afterward. They weren't, you know, now get in back in your hermetically sealed vehicle and head home. They were socializing and having coffee and donuts. And by the way, I went there and some guy said, Hey, I said, I said to some guy, I'm sorry, I've never been here before. I'm trying to find the restroom for my daughter. And he says, Tom Woods, oh, God, can I ever get away no from kidding. this? <laughs> but, but anyway, yeah. So the, the nice thing is there is a place in Orlando, but it's a drive for us. It's a real drive um, where they offer some, I, I don't want to get to too uh, inside baseball. They offer something called the Anglican use which is like the traditional Latin mass, uh, except in beautiful Elizabethan English. And, but otherwise, ritualistically, it's, it's identical. And they are as normal as can be. So you have to really make an extra effort. And sometimes, you know, especially with five of them, uh, it's, it's, it can be tricky. But if you make that extra effort, you can find normality. Do you have like a, like a daily 
prayer or meditation or anything like that practice? For the longest time, my, um, um, my regimen has sort of been like, there's, there's a, something called the morning offering, which is, well, I, I know you can probably know some of these things. There's a prayer you say that you, which you offer, uh, your prayers, joys, and sufferings of, of the day, um, for particular intentions. So, um, I would generally do that and a few other, few other prayers. And I used to, when I was in graduate school, I used to go to mass every single day, every day I was at mass and that's just become impractical for me, but I still have things like that. I used to, now this, this is, I've not ever told anybody. So old gentleman here is able to (laughs) get these things out of old woods. Getting the scoop. Um, I used to have a spiritual director who was very much influenced by uh, St. Jose Maria Escriva of Opus Dei. And I know you say Opus Dei and you think uh, the Da Vinci Code and whatever. And, and by the way, I'm not 100% fan of Opus Dei. I think there are things about it that are, I hate to use the left-wing word problematic, but there definitely are some problematic parts to it. But anyway, this spiritual director of mine was not Opus Dei, but he was influenced by them. And he used to say that you should start your day by kissing the floor and saying, Serviam because it's the opposite of the satanic non-serviam, I will not serve. But you begin your day with, I will serve. I will, I will do what is good, you know, and I will serve people who need me to serve them. And so I used to, especially when I was in graduate school, I would have, um, during May, which is the month of Mary, I would buy a rose every day and place it at the feet of a Marian statue somewhere wow. in the city. So things like that, that I know some people, you know, who are listening to this will think that's just stupid and backward, but I don't know. I don't feel that way. Sure. And it, I mean, whether it's stupid and backward or not, uh, spiritual warfare is really the only way to, or maybe not the only way, but it is certainly an effective way to go to battle against this strange religion that's kind of overtaken society. Um, Vin Armani has spoken at length about how, you know, we've entered an age of magic and the only way to fight magic is with like real uh, magic. So that's why I'm asking a lot of my guests sort of about their spiritual practices and being that you're um, kind of well-known as a religious person. um, I wanted to ask about that. Uh, Vin actually, he started a meditation practice where he would walk the beach and just use the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner, as like a mantra, even prior to um, a conversion to Christianity, which I'm, I think is in, in progress still. Hmm. Um, so, you know, I mean, I know it, people who are that way. I know yeah. people who are that way too. Yeah. Um, what do you make of like the COVID religion or the cult or whatever? It, it seems like this was something that's been long in the making. I've been criticized for comparing or even just flat out calling statism and progressivism, I suppose, a religion. Um, do you think more and more people are coming around to that view though? The view that it is a religion or the coming or, or yeah. joining a religion? That it, that it is a religion. Uh, I see that terminology being used all the time, especially because the way heretics are dealt with is is almost laughable. It's so it's so drearily predictable and follows a ritualistic pattern. And then there are certain platitudes that 
are not ever presented with evidence. They're just, everyone is expected to believe and repeat them. And, and the people who belong to it think of themselves as superior to everybody else that they, they genuinely do. It's, and it's not that people who disagree with them have a competing point of view that they ought to reckon with and, and treat respectfully. It's that those, those aren't almost aren't even people. So I don't need to consider what Woods has to say about X, Y, or Z. I already know. I've already received the revelation, whether it's from Fauci or anybody else. And if Fauci's messaging changes, then they just change with the changes. That's it's and and they it's it's and the thing is they what they're asking of science is something science can't give them. Right. Science can't give them the kind of certainty that they want to have. Right now, I mean, remember early on, everybody was saying what we need is a whole bunch of ventilators. And then we had a small, tiny minority of doctors saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, uh, the, the ventilators may actually be counterproductive in a lot of cases. Now, thank goodness we didn't have, the cultists weren't in full force yet, or those doctors would have been excommunicated as heretics, and we would have continued to kill people with the ventilators. So we need there to be experimentation and skepticism and people willing to be, to say things that are, that, that dissent from, from the consensus. That's not what they want. They want certainties spewed at them. And they also want to be told the answers to the meaning of life. Like uh, science can't tell you whether you should value highly questionable measures to uh, allegedly to, to mitigate the spread of a virus as opposed to um, seeing your grandparents for the last time. I mean, science can't tell you which of those you should value. Why would you think science could tell you that? That's a complete category mistake. And yet these people act as if I'm, uh, I'm against science if I think my grandmother should see her, my grandmother, both my grandmothers are deceased, so this is just hypothetical, but uh, if I were to say my grandmother should see her grandkids a few more times, that's not anti-science. That's nothing whatsoever to do with science. It's a value judgment. Do you see, um, do you see a sort of, I don't, I don't want to, like a faith-based community forming on the other side, uh, sort of a, a cult of Trump? Um, obviously not as large or not as influential, uh, but do you think it's, well, first of all, do you think it's, it's there? And if so, do you think that it's potentially dangerous? Uh, yes to both. I think we saw that, I, I mean, we went through the Obama years and, and we saw people who were willing to, to some degree, resist the cult of the presidency. But then when it was their president, they want to say, they want to use creepy phrases like my president and oh Mm -hmm. gosh. And they were just as bad during the George W. Bush years, although Bush did not generate the level of intense loyalty, obviously, that, that Trump did. And I think in some cases, this can be explained by I'm trying to put my mind, I'm trying to be as empathetic as possible. And I have tried to do that on all, genuinely on all sides mm-hmm. of, of question. Like even with SJWs, I say to myself, well, a lot of times our views are formed by formative experiences that we have in our lives. And, and some of these people, I bet, you know, they're, they're, one of their parents uh, got laid off by in, in very un, un unpleasant circumstances and were treated very badly on the job. And that's going to form the way they think about 
labor unions and employment and economics and you know, even before I get to them with my charts and graphs. You know, so I, I get that, that you know, some of my views come from these sort of visceral sources. So I'm trying to understand people the best I can. And with the case of Trump, I think a lot of people feel like in this society, they're just surrounded. They are surrounded everywhere they look by people who hate their guts, influential people who hate their guts. And then one guy comes along and very, very imperfectly tries to say a word in their favor. And so, yeah, they view him as a, a savior figure, not not necessarily in a religious sense, but uh, but in a way where they're going to give him the benefit of the doubt, even in cases where it's clearly unreasonable to give him the benefit of the doubt. And so, yeah, so there, there's definitely, and then of course, some of these, I can't tell you how many people told me, look, there is no way Joe Biden is going to take office. He will not be yeah. the next president. I was told that in no uncertain terms. And I knew this was all, this is all crazy. That this, what you're telling me is verifiably crazy, and I would be willing to bet you. The problem is I'm afraid you'd take the bet, and I don't want to ruin you. So, so the, yeah, that that is a problem. It's a, it's a problem of politics in general uh, that it, you know, don't imminentize the eschaton. You know, I mean, it, it takes... <laughs> It takes the mundane and tries to put it on par with the sacred and people, you know, like like the way people acted when um, that so-called insurrection, quote unquote, took place. How many people talk, spoke about the sacred space that had been invaded? It's not what? Right. What are you talking about? Right. The, so the temple of democracy of gives rise to this. Temple of democracy, I think, is the is the the weirdest phrase that uh that i've heard actually did you have you ever looked at a at a map of the of the mall the what, what the national mall it looks exactly like a cathedral um the the lincoln memorial is at the head of the cross congress is at the foot of the cross and then jefferson and uh i think the white house or something like that are the are the transepts and then right in the middle where jesus's heart was pierced is the washington monument oh my gosh I have not looked at it that way at all, but I, who knows if that's a coincidence or, or what, but that is something. <laughs> and then, yeah. And then you've got the, and then you've got the, uh, the, the, the reflecting pool where the, where the water and blood flowed through. So uh, it's, it's really kind of creepy. Um, <laughs> I noticed that at a, at just, it happened to be, I, I happened to look at a map while I was in DC with um, Thad Russell's group. Uh, and I don't know if anybody's ever written about that or what, but, Anyway, um, oh God, I got off track. What do you, so what do you think of, I mean, where, where do we go from there? Like the, the, I, I actually made that bet. Um, someone still owes me a hundred dollars because Biden's sitting in the white house right now, but this person thinks that Biden is not actually sitting in the white house. Um, the white house has been dark every night since Biden took office and he's actually, doing staged photo ops from like a literal, you know, soundstage of some sort. Uh, and yeah, Trump didn't, didn't stage his insurrection on March 9th and, you know, retake the white house, but, and we're not setting dates anymore, but I promise you Trump's going to be back in office. Um, it's getting, it's getting seventh day Adventist almost. Yeah. Yeah. It is. <laughs> what? It is. So, so, but these are also people who are allies in this COVID movement or in the, in the, in the COVID uh, stuff. So yeah. what, 
how do we how do we kind of thread that needle where we've got people who will oppose the future lockdowns and other other stuff, but also they're a little bit crazy. Well, the thing is, the other side is full of crazy people, too. They just have a lot of crazy people because they have a lot of people. They just have a lot of people. I mean, I, uh, most of Hollywood is kind of odd in one way or another. If we were to look at their personal practices, I bet we'd find some oddities in there. Uh, they're willing to believe a lot of crazy theories also. Uh, these are people who, uh, you know, I think the greatest atrocity of the 21st century for the U.S. was the Iraq War. And most of them are, are pretty blasé about that because they would gladly take George W. Bush back if it meant they could get the establishment back. So eh, I don't know that I'm that worried about it, but it's it's a matter of uh, any time you are involved in a cause that is in some way fringe in, in the sense that it's not the accepted position of the Washington Post, you're going to encounter people who just naturally gravitate to fringe causes because they tend to be fringy individuals. That That's unavoidable. So when, I mean, I'm sure you can attest at uh, the traditional Latin mass, you find a lot of perfectly normal people there. And then you find people, you know, who will show up dressed like it's uh, 18th century France or something. You know, it's, they're just odd people or, yeah, I mean, they're just people who bring craziness everywhere they go. They br- their lives are chaotic, so they bring chaos everywhere they go. Like I know a parish where they had everything they, they could possibly want. They had all the sacraments in the old traditional way, and they had absolutely everything they wanted. And so then they started arguing about which translation of the Fatima prayer should we be using. Like they, they I mean, really, really arguing about that. that. That does not matter at all. It makes absolutely no difference. So there are just some people who, for some reason, they just gravitate to either fringiness or to to conflict or whatever, and they just bring chaos everywhere they go. So now with me, I mean, I've been pretty much in the heat of this. Uh, I I have a lot of people on my mailing list. I, I, I know most of the people who are outspokenly against the lockdowns. I mean, you know, um, I've either had them on my show or we correspond or whatever. And most of the, and these are basically all good, normal people. So I frankly haven't dealt a whole lot with people who, yeah, they're against lockdowns, but they're also against any kind of sanity whatsoever. Um, I, I don't mean, I don't know how to answer your question really, other than to say that these are the cards we've been dealt. I mean, we, we um, unfortunately, the, let's say that there's a disproportionate number of people who believe crazy things among the people who don't believe in the lockdowns. And that's partly because people who do believe in the lockdowns tend to be people who on principle will just believe what they're told. And that means that when people are officially told something, we have other people who on principle will never believe what they're told. Even when the, occasionally the establishment does tell you the truth about something every now and then. And then we have people who won't even believe them even then. So we have these two different kinds of groups and each one is frustrating in its own way. But at least the people who are a little bit nuts on the, the Trump side, at least they'll let my kids socialize. They won't ruin my life. And that's that's why I'm a little more sympathetic to them. Let's uh, let's switch gears for the last few minutes. Um, so we've talked a little bit about sort of your journey from academia to being a business owner. 
what what do you think are the first few steps to becoming financially independent and not beholden to like an employer? Uh, well, to some degree, and I I have I have sometimes ridiculed mindset courses in the past because I feel like, come on, fix your own mindset. You don't need a four hundred ninety seven dollar course to do it. But maybe some people do. It has to start with a mindset shift. It, it, it does, because you have to think of yourself as somebody who is a producer of some kind. Or the default position is to think of yourself as you sit there, you wait for other people to make things, and then you consume those things. But as soon as you say, wait a minute, those people are not any different from me. and They belong to the same species that I do. There's no reason I can't also be somebody who creates. I mean, there. I talk to people in business all the time and all day long, they're coming up with great ideas they can't wait to try out. I just had a meeting with somebody yesterday, the great, the great Paul Counts, who is a seventh great grandson of uh, Patrick Henry, as it turns out. And he and I were coming up with an idea for something we're gonna do. And we were just throwing ideas at each other and we just having a blast doing it. Now, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have done that because I, I would have thought, I can't launch a business. Like I don't, what do I know about any of this? I, I just get my paycheck and I go home. That would have been the end of it. So that mindset that no, 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 no. And, and then as soon as you do that, suddenly your brain works differently and ideas come to you. Uh, um, I, I, had a, I had a private conversation with a guy named Jay Abraham. If you don't know Jay Abraham, you should, after we're done, look him up. Jay Abraham has, has been a coach in, bus, in, indus, in probably a thousand different industries. You think that's not possible. How could you know enough about all those industries to be able to help them all? He doesn't, but he knows big mistakes when he sees them. He knows huge gaps that aren't being filled when he sees them. And so he is one of the great business minds of our time. And I joined one of his uh, programs. I'm, I'm going through it right now. And when I got on the phone with one of his people, because you have to talk to them for 15 minutes, I got on the phone with them and I said, you know what I really would like? to talk to Jay Abraham, to get to talk to him for two hours, have him review everything I'm doing and tell me what I'm overlooking or what I could be doing better. And, and I said, I know it costs a fortune to talk to him. And yeah, because if you if you want Jay Abraham to consult with you for a day, it's it's gonna it's gonna run you close to a hundred grand. I mean that's that's his, how good his mind is. Well, I managed to finagle my way into two hours with him. Now, 10 years ago, I would have thought, oh, that's way too much money. There's no way, how could I ever? But you gotta spend money to make money. And I did that. And I tell you, there was a five minute period in that two hour conversation that was worth five times what I paid for it, okay? So, so, it, it, so first is the mindset shift. Secondly is, uh, it you will probably have to spend a little money educating yourself, learning things, uh, unless you have an inordinate amount of time on your hands. We either have time or money, usually. And I prefer, I have a lot of time right now, but I don't want to spend it on this. I want people to teach me things. Show me how to do it. I don't want to learn how to design my website. But sorry, I just don't want to. I want somebody, I want to pay somebody to do that. Um, so that, like, I don't edit my my podcast interviews I have an audio guy do that so that I can do other things that that are more lucrative for me. You know, I, I think that way. I think in the four hour work week kind of way 
What are the things that I absolutely indispensably must do? I must host the Tom Woods show. That, that one, it's, it's baked into the name. There's no getting around that. I must do that. But what are other things that if I had other people do them, yeah, I would pay them, but could I be earning more than I pay them by doing something else in the meantime, thinking that way. But in terms of like the very first steps, other than just getting your mind in the right place and saying, I'm just as, you know, much a human being as anybody else who does these sorts of things. The other thing would be, you can sit and think about niches and what would be my my best niche. You can do the classic thing where you try to intersect things that I'm good at or enjoy and things that make money and try and do that. Um, sometimes niching really down can be really good to, to find, uh, you know, not just, let's say, um, um, you know, not just trying to help real estate agents, but maybe people trying to get their real estate license or something. I mean, just something really specific. Um, you can, you can do that. But, but if, but since you're asking me on this particular day at this particular time of year, I'd like to take two minutes to give you what I think is an excellent strategy. Like you can, as soon as you hear me say this, you can instantly go implement it. Okay. You, you don't owe me a thing except maybe write me a note, tell me how it went. But this is something I'm going to be doing twice this year, once for Liberty Classroom and once for a brand new thing I'm doing. And as soon as I heard it, I said, that's an awesome idea. And it's this, it's simply this. And it's something that you can use to build an existing business. And it's something you can use to start out from scratch and start making a big splash. Now, do you already know what I'm going to say? I certainly do. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to say it anyway, doggone it, because not everybody is as astute as you are. It's, 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 I, well, it's it's because I'm a super fanboy and follow you everywhere. So that's okay. That's, good, good, good. Well, that's <laughs> I appreciate that. All right. Well, I am definitely doing this. It's the challenge model. The idea is you take a five day period, and for five days you say you say, look, I'm going to give this five day challenge to all you people out there. And the examples that I gave the other day were. If you're in weight loss, you say, let's do a five pounds in five days challenge and sign up here. It's free. And every day for five days, I'll be on there for an hour with you. And we're going to we're going to learn things. We're going to learn good, healthy practices. We're going to do this and that. We're going to train and whatever. And then on the fourth day, you introduce people to your business. You say, well, you know what? You've now had a chance for four hours to get a sense of what you can expect if you work with me. And I hope you've gotten a lot of value out of this and you've really enjoyed it. Well, if you'd like this process to continue, if you want to keep making this progress, here are the services I offer in my business. And maybe, you know, and then you have a really, really big deal that you're offering them on that. And now they've had a chance. No, your competitors are not doing this. There is, you know, in the, the huge competitors you have are not coming down from their ivory towers to talk to the public like this. They're not, but you are. And so even if they don't sign up with your business, and most people won't, you just built up a huge amount of goodwill, You and no one's unhappy at you for, for making them an offer. All they have to do is say no. I mean, they, they're getting five free hours of your time. Or another example, you're in publishing. You offer, you say, let's do a five-day challenge to outline that book you want to write. And for five days, I'm going to work with you live uh, uh, on this call for an hour a day, and we're going to work together to outline your book. And then on day four, you say, all right, we've made great progress outlining your book. You want to, now you want to write that book? Well, I have a 90-day crash course to write your book. And if you've enjoyed working with me so far on this free challenge, well, here's my, here's my program. I love this. I think, because I think,
think that's a that's a winner because even if it's a loser, even if you don't get a lot of signups or whatever, you, you okay, you wasted five hours of your time, big deal. But you can you can record those five hours and and give it away as a as a bonus to to or, or something. The, the point is the challenge. Not only does it get you customers out of the gate, but it builds up an email list for you because all those people, there are a lot of people who sign up for free stuff, you know, and you keep those email addresses. You can follow up with them. You can offer this or that. Maybe they don't want your $2,000 coaching program. Maybe they'll want your $10 video or something like that. You've got them on your list. You know, they're interested in that kind of thing. You can make offers to them. And so I'm going to be doing that. Like, why would I not do that with Liberty Classroom? Why would I not say, I'm going to do a five-day crash course in U.S. history, in non-PC U.S. history. Why would I not do that? I would get a huge number of people signing up for that. And then on the fourth day, I'll say, I hope you've enjoyed this. And there's a lot more where that came from. And I have Liberty Classroom. And I make them an irresistible offer. And I get maybe I get hundreds of new people on that one day by doing this strategy. Now, that this strategy, me outlining that to you, this costs you nothing. All you have to do is listen to James Gentleman's podcast and you get stuff like this and you can go implement this immediately. Now, I interviewed a guy who's like the expert and he knows all the best practices, but even if you don't know any of the best practices, you got the basic rough outline. That's a great way to go from zero to something. You offer the world something and you offer it for free. You offer yourself to the world and you let them decide if they want to work with you you can do that with a business you have already or with one that you're starting. But there are possibilities out there that technology makes possible that people and marketers, I mean, we would have killed for 30 years ago. Now they're all around you. You should use them. I, now, as I say, maybe I'm just so caught up in this that I can't help myself. I, I personally feel like that is an irresistibly good idea. In fact, I was on that call with Paul Counts. And we were thinking of ways we could work together. And he was thinking, well, maybe we'll do like a low end product, like a, a, a low cost product and with a funnel. And I said, yeah, but you know what? I talked to this guy, Pedro Adeo, who does uh, these challenges. And I explained to Paul the challenge idea. Paul's been around marketing like his whole life. And he said, that's such a good idea. We're doing that. We're going to do the, the five. I mean, as soon as I described it to this veteran marketer, he knew that was a brilliant idea. So do stuff like that. I, that was way more than two minutes. <laughs> no, that's a, but it's a great idea. So do you think that you picked the, picked out the challenges thing right now because that's currently what you're promoting or uh, because you just think it's such a great idea right now or um, well, is it like I a breakthrough for you? I found out about it. I found out about this idea about two weeks ago. I had never heard of Pedro Adeo before. I had never heard of challenges, which is why I don't think his marketing is very effective. The The Facebook ads I now see from him say, have you noticed that challenges are all the rage? And I'm thinking, no, I, I haven't actually. I'd never even heard of them till I heard of you. So I, I don't like that 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 line in his ad. But I found out about it, and he has a, he's he's doing a challenge where he's this is very meta. He's doing a challenge where he's going to teach people how to start their challenges. Okay, so very meta kind of thing he's doing. And when th that was brought to my attention by a guy I know, Matt McWilliams, he said, "Have you seen this?" And I looked at it and I said, no, but I want my people to know about it. And then after I talked to Pedro on my show, we got off the air and he said, I see you have an online business, this Liberty Classroom. How's that doing? I said, oh, yeah, it's doing great. We're going about nine years, doing great. And he says, well, how would you like it to do really well? Like, what am I going to say? Nah, I don't want that. <laughs> I said, yeah, of course. Yeah, what, what, what are you talking about? And he says, well, look, I'll sit down with you and I'll help you design your challenge. 
And I'm telling you that is going to make a big difference in your business. And so I just started salivating. I thought, oh, that's great. So then now it's like, sometimes I just get fixated on whatever is put in front of me. And this, like, it's, it's all I can talk about is because, but then I'm thinking, okay, but what does he recommend like, after the five days? Do you let people watch replays? Do you take it all down? Do they have to be li-? like, I don't even know the answer to these questions. I just know the strategy is good. Yeah, that's relatable. All right. Well, Tom, I don't want to take too much more of your time. Why don't you tell people where they should go in order to follow you? Well, um, I think these days, because of the COVID thing, I'm going to say two things. Normally, you're supposed to give only one link. I'll give mm-hmm. two links. I'm really happy with the latest uh, ebook that I put out called COVID Charts CNN Forgot. I felt like uh, somebody actually on Twitter suggested this to me. You know, you, you know, I send a lot of charts in my emails about you know comparing one state with another or two counties next to each other, and they're doing different things. They have the same curve and all that. He said, well, why don't you combine a lot of these curves into a book? because that way people can spread it a lot easier than if it's spread out over a hundred emails. I thought, geez, why didn't I think of that? So it really tells the story in graphs that you can never unsee. Once you see these, they'll haunt you forever. So I bought the domain chartstheyforgot.com. And if you get that ebook, that gets you on my mailing list. And you may think, oh, I don't wanna be on somebody's mailing list, but James, you tell people, do they wanna be on my mailing list? They want to be on your mailing list if for no other reason than that sometimes their tweets will be featured in it. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Every, that's exactly right. You never know where Woods is going to pull some inspiration. But the other thing would simply be tomspodcast.com. That will take you right to the page with all the episodes. Um, I'm approaching 1,900 of them as, as we speak. And you'll see them all listed there as well as uh, the links to subscribe. So so the, the links are chartstheyforgot.com and tomspodcast.com. All right. Awesome. Uh, and I will be I will be in Orlando for your 2000th episode. I'm checking Southwest Airlines website about once a week to see when tickets are on sale because um, I'm not going to miss Oh, that is that. excellent. I, I appreciate that. We are going to have an absolute blast at that thing. Excellent. I'm, I'm just about to put up the I'm having a professional design the page for the registration for the event. I mean, I could just make one on lead pages, but I want this to look, you know, I want this to look nice. So I actually hired somebody. So that'll go up soon. And I'll have a link for if anybody wants to get rooms in the block that we have at the Rose and Shingle Creek, they can do that. And by the way, the the discounted rate that the Shingle Creek is giving us, like it's over 50%. I mean, it's a massive discount uh, people get if they want to stay at that property. Uh, and the and last, I, I don't get any affiliate thing from them. I, all I'm doing is paying them. Said, money is going out of my pocket into their coffers. So I get nothing back from these people. Nothing. Well, the last time I was at the Rosen Center was for the LP convention in 2020. So hopefully this one will be a little bit more fun than that, at least. Yeah, yes. But make sure you, you remember it's not the same place. It's not the oh. Rosen Center where I had my thousand oh. episodes. It's specifically right. the Rosen Shingle Creek. Okay. So don't show up at the at the other <laughs> place. You're gonna be very sad. It's all right. I just follow the arrows anyway. Well, okay, thanks so okay. much, Tom. Yeah, that's what I do. Yeah. <laughs> thanks so much. It's been a blast talking to you. Thanks, James. Thanks again to Tom for joining me today. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, quick public service announcement. I am gonna be in Dallas this week. And so 
I'm going to be having dinner on Thursday night, April 8th, 2021 uh, in Richardson. If you would like details on this, please send me a message on Twitter. So once again, that's Thursday night, April 8th, 2021 in Richardson, Texas. Uh, and for details, send me a message on Twitter. Um, alternatively, if you are a subscriber on Substack, um, you can also just reply to the email notification that you get. Um, and those replies come directly to me. So that's another great way to get in contact with me. And also, if you aren't subscribed on Substack, I implore you, please do that because I am producing written content in addition to this podcast. And so if you do like the material that I put out, um, I think you're going to also enjoy the written content and they're on the same feed. But wherever you're listening to this podcast, I do appreciate you listening and tuning in. And with that, I will see you on the next episode of Blackbird. Until then, live free.